Good evening. It's um, Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. And this is the uh, St. Anne's uh, Romans Bible study. Um, tonight we're covering the second half, roughly, of Romans chapter 8. Father Daniel was not able to uh, join us and lead us this evening, so he's delegated that to me, and so I'll try to do that as best I can. Um, so let's go ahead and open first with prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father who is from everlasting and thine all holy good and life-creating spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So then let me go ahead and share the screen. So last week we covered through verse 17 of this chapter. We've been trying to do a chapter a week, but in Romans 8 that seemed impracticable. So we're splitting it up. We're going to try to finish it tonight. Um, Let's see, Erica, would you mind just to give us a little context, picking up at about verse 12 and reading down through verse 25? Sure. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit, spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Thank you. Um, so maybe in some general sense, as I've been reading John Chrysostom's homilies on these passages, and I need to get down to that here. And notes, let's see. 
There we go. Um, the way he sees it, Paul's general theme at this point is to offer encouragement and exhortation to his audience. Um, and the, the um, encouragement is to speak of the tremendous grace and gifts and glories that God has in mind for us and how, um, you know, just he has blessed us beyond all expectation and all imagination. Um, and this, when we were in fact his enemies. And so by all these means to encourage us that, um, you know, we, we might walk in this hope. And, you know, being greatly confident of all that Christ is doing for us. And yet at the same time, it's a warning against listlessness, to use one of John Chrysostom's favorite words, um, to say, you know, we, we have been, God has given us all these things and made the battle that we fight easy, not so that we can rest, but so that we can fight successfully and we, we need to continue the battle. Um, and so it's sort of this encouragement, it's not in vain. It's also the encouragement you can triumph, you know, don't give up, don't just take your ease. That would be unworthy of, uh, of what you've been called to. And so looking here at verse 18, where we're picking up, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And, um, you know, it's, it's impossible, at least for me, to do justice to all that St. John has to say about this whole passage. But here are just some of the points he mentions about that single verse. So first of all, in verse 18, he sees the Apostle Paul promoting humility by showing how vastly disproportionate God's rewards are to our labors. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like, well, we do have things to do, and yet what God intends to do for us in return is so wildly beyond anything that one could say our works deserve that we still have to recognize it all as a gift, even while we see that we have things to do. So first of all, there's the call to humility. Secondly, in what we had just read before this and what's come before that, it says, Paul has been teaching the spiritual man to correct his fleshly habits. But here he's going to go further and teach him to bear up under trials and persecutions. So his comment was, well, it's one thing to recognize that you're doing things that are not worthy of the gospel and try to quit. It's another thing when you're living according to the gospel to have people persecuting you and you know, whether it's putting you in prison or beating you or um, putting you to death or whatever it may be, starving you, um, it's a much harder thing to continue to follow Christ when faced with those, that sort of opposition than simply when you're trying to fight your own tendency toward, you know, lust, 
or gluttony or um, anger. And then he sees in this, um, he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in, to, in us. And since he's talking about labors, Chrysostom says, well, you might expect that he would speak not of the glory, but of the rest. That we are laboring now and God will give us rest. But he says, no, the apostle says something much greater that it's not just rest he has for us, but glory, which certainly includes rest, but much, much beyond that. And then fourthly, he looks at the word revealed and says, this glory is not going to be like suddenly produced at some point in the future, but it is as something that's already been prepared and is just waiting for our labors to be brought to light. And he compares this to uh, Colossians 3, where the apostle talks about our life is hidden with Christ and God. And so, you know, it's like our life, what it is now and its glory, they exist, but they're hidden with Christ. And when, when Christ appears, these things will be revealed. And he says also about this revelation that it's something that can't be revealed here because it so transcends the condition we currently lived in that it can't even be expressed in this world. So, you know, his commentary is like that. Verse by verse, he, he studies word after word, and, and maybe you've read it, but, you know, he, he just mines it and mines it and finds more and more riches. And it's like, eh, now, if we do that for every verse tonight, <laughs> <laughs> we'll need a part three that's right <laughs> so um but do you have any comments observations questions so far um i can't really think of anything right now I, I'll, I'll try not to um you know put the spotlight on you and ask you to respond to each little bit but <laughs> <laughs> You, you can let the other people who are going to hear this in the recording consider it's directed at them too to respond. <laughs> um, so uh, Chrysostom looks at verses 19 and 20 where uh, Paul begins to talk about, and 21 and 22, it goes on talking about the creation. And he talks about this personification of the creation. And um, he takes it that what the Apostle Paul here is doing is not trying to tell us that, well, actually, the, the, the creation is truly doing these things. It's more a, a figure of speech to say the blessings coming are so great that it's like it's even going to touch the insensible things of the creation. The rocks and the trees will be affected by it. Um, and... Uh, when it talks about these things were subjected to futility, he means he takes this to mean simply corruption. So just as man became corruptible and decays and dies, so the whole creation became corruptible and decays. Um, and he mentions there in particular, there from Genesis, how God cursed the ground on account of the man. Um, and he really emphasizes in this passage how the creation was made 
for our, was made for man. And so if the creation is now suffering uh, decay because of what we did or what happened to us, it's, this is no injustice for the creation because it exists for man. And so um, as it currently shares our corruptibility and suffering, then when man is uh, released from this and, and comes into incorruptibility in Christ, then the creation also will. And he uses the illustration he talks about like uh, a nurse who cares for the son of a king and cares for him all of his years until he grows up. And then when the son becomes king himself, well, the, the nurse is also honored and cared for by, by the child she, she once cared for. And said, so this is rather, the, the creation is rather like the nurse. Or again, he says, when uh, a nobleman has a son who is about to be given a great public honor, the nobleman not only sees that the son is well-dressed for the occasion, but he makes sure that all of his servants are well-dressed for the occasion, uh, that he, he buys them new clothes and nicer clothes maybe than they would normally be wearing. And he says in the same way, the creation is like a servant that's going to be dressed up and be given a, a brighter garment when, when man uh, comes into his inheritance. Um, and if you have comments or questions, just jump in. Um, um, I mean, a couple of things that are kind of popping up. Uh, like first kind of the, the picture of uh, the, the story of the prodigal and uh, when he returns back from living the life of debauchery and father dresses him up in the robe, puts spring, shoes on his feet, like that. that's kind of what's coming to mind. And then mm. also, uh, I have to be careful how I say this because I say it wrong if I'm not careful. The on the incarnation, not in the carnation. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, St. Athanasius uh, of, uh, you know, he speaks a lot. It's been a couple of years since I've read it, but uh, he speaks a lot of how uh, losing communion with God, everything is thrown into decay. And mm. it is through regaining the communion that things are uh, like vivified again, I think is how you put it. Again, it's been a few years. I don't remember the exact language, but uh, quite a few similar themes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, very good. And of course, uh, I, th I think Chrysostom and Athanasius I mean, in some fashion overlapped. I wonder, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head whether they might have known each other. But, um, but yeah, it, it would make sense that those images would be very much in his mind. Certainly, if anything, Chrysostom came slightly after Athanasius. Um, so he goes on and talks in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors. And he's saying essentially, if the creation is not content with its own current state, we ought not to content ourselves with the creation as it is. That is, we ought not to, you know, direct our whole lives toward living in this world. The creation's looking forward to something else. 
that's where our attention ought to be as well. We shouldn't be clinging to it. In verse 23, he talks about um, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan eagerly waiting for the adoption. And he says, now, wait a minute, Paul, didn't you just say already that we have received the spirit of adoption? Haven't you said in many places? And he um, he, um, he says, well, yes, but many that were sons have become dogs and prisoners. He says, we face uncertainty until our last breath. It is only then dying with a good hope that our situation becomes secure when our body is redeemed, freed from death and passions. And he compares this to Philippians 3.21, where it says uh, that he will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And also in 1 Corinthians 15.54, when this mortal body shall put on immortality, death is swallowed up in victory. Um, so, you know, he's saying, okay, you have enjoyed this adoption and yet you can abandon it and, you know, make yourself a dog or a prisoner. And so you need to persevere because this only becomes certain if we die with a good hope, which I take it to mean if we remain faithfully in the faith to the end. Um, he also points out in this word, first fruits, that the good things that we enjoy now are, um, and what does he say? Being freed from sins, attaining righteousness and sanctification, as well as the things we've seen of like the apostles driving out demons and raising the dead just by their shadows or by a garment. He says, these are just first fruits. It's kind of like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, wait, there's uh, more. Yeah, that's right. But wait, there's more. <laughs> and the more is unspeakably greater. And so by all these means, he tries to encourage us both that we not lose heart, but secondly, that we not kind of just say, hey, good things have happened to me. I can stop and rest. Um, and there in verse 24, he talks about we were saved in hope. And he, talk, he elaborates on hope for a bit. Uh, hope that seen is not hope. Why do you hope for what you see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait for it. And he says that um, we are not to seek our all in this life, but to have hope also. That again, hope is saying, we don't expect to get all the good stuff that we want in this life. We need to be looking for the life to come. He goes on and says, for this is the only gift that we brought into God, believing him in what he promised shall come. And it was by this way alone we were saved. If then we lose this hope, we have lost all that was of our own contributing. So essentially, God has done everything else. The one thing we brought was to believe him when he promised us all these lovely things. And um, he goes on and says, in effect, if, if when we were full of sin and despair, we found salvation by hoping in God alone, which I think is hoping that all we brought was hope, we should all the more persevere in it now. And what he actually says is, the dowry, this dowry was the only one that you brought to the bridegroom. Hold it then fast and keep it. So he greatly emphasizes the importance of persevering in hope and faith, not abandoning them now. Um, 
so then we get into verse 26, and let me read these two verses, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And Chrysostom begins this um, with just noting, uh, noticing that often we don't know what to pray for, that many things that seem like they would be a blessing to us, in fact, would not be good for us. And he says, you know, generally we would pray to be relieved from scourgings and persecutions. But Paul himself prayed to be able to travel to Rome uh, and to have this thorn in his flesh relieved, and God said no. And um, the point is that uh, the Spirit knows these things and we don't. And so our perceptions are often inaccurate about what would be good to pray for. And he also takes Old, Old Testament examples of Moses at, praying to see the promised land and Abraham praying for Sodom to be spared. And then he says something very interesting that I don't recall seeing anywhere else. And I don't even remember seeing it the last time I did this. So it's kind of a long quote, but let me read it. Um, says where it talks about the spirit making intercession for us. He says, now this statement is unclear because many of the wonders that used to take place have now ceased. I need to inform you of the state of things at that time, and that will clarify the matter. What was the state of things? So he's talking about in like New Testament times. In those days, God gave certain excellent gifts to all the baptized, and the gifts were called spirits. For the spirit of prophets, it says, are subject to the prophets. That's from 1 Corinthians. And one had the gift of prophecy and foretold things to come, and another the gift of wisdom and taught many, and another the gift of healings and cured the sick, and another the gift of miracles and raised the dead, and another the gift of tongues and spoke different languages. And there was also a gift of prayer which was also called a spirit. And he that had this gift prayed for all the people. For since we are ignorant of much that is profitable for us and ask things that are not profitable, the gift of prayer came into some particular person and whatever was profitable for the whole church, he was appointed to ask, to ask for on behalf of all and to instruct the rest. Paul here gives the name spirit to this grace and to the person that receives that grace and intercedes with God and groans. For he that was counted worthy of such grace asked what was profitable for all, standing with much compunction and falling before God with many mental groanings. The deacon symbolizes this in our own day when he offers up prayers for the people. This is what Paul means when he says the spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And according to the footnote in the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, St. Ambrose has the same interpretation of this passage. So evidently what he's saying is that here in New King James, where it capitalizes for this, but the spirit himself makes intercession, that that should probably not be capitalized because it's not referring to the Holy Spirit, but to a member of the congregation to whom the spirit has given this particular gift of prayer.
That's probably the first that I've heard of this too. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, sort of, I don't know much to say about it other than just, well, this was what John Chrysostom understood. But I do find it really striking. He talks about the deacon offering the prayers for the people. And it's like, well, we certainly still do that. For sure. <laughs> we can recognize this. And so there's some real uh, continuity there in our practice. Um, but, you know, I think it's striking because that's just a completely different reading of the passage than anything I would have come up with otherwise. Um, so going on, and again, don't hesitate to break in with any thoughts. Um, starting then at verse 28, let me go ahead and read just a couple more verses here. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Um, and so Chrysostom reads there, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Uh, sort of as an extension of what he's just been talking about. We don't know what to pray for for ourselves. And the apostle here has been trying to encourage and comfort the believers who may be suffering whatever trials. And so now he's encouraging them um, to persevere in hope because this is how they're saved. And that even though they don't know what to pray for, even if what they might pray for relief from their sufferings and they're not granted this, they continue to suffer, that God uses even these sufferings for their glory and their approval. And um, he goes on and talks about um, to those who are called according to the word his, you see, is italicized in the New King James there because it doesn't appear in the original. And so Chrysostom does not read this, who are called according to his purpose, but who are called according to purpose, namely that the people themselves whom God is calling have the right purpose in their hearts to respond well to God's calling. And so these things working together for good depends not only on the work of God, but on our purposing, you know, having the right purpose, our obedience to his call to respond well to it. Um, and then in verse 29, for Chrysostom talks about being conformed to the image of his son. And here we have a very famous quote um, you know, we hear it in various forms in the fathers, and Father Stephen talks about this, that God became man in order that man might become God, which, of course, appears in St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. But here Chrysostom's comment is, what superb honor for what the only begotten was by nature, this they also have become by grace. Um, which is a, a common statement you know, that we hear within the church. And so, you know, this is what we are called for and being called to be conformed to the image of his son. We are called by God's grace to become what Christ himself is. The son is by nature. 
And then uh, Chrysostom sees how the apostle further intensifies this. He says, not merely do we bear his image, but he's going to be the firstborn, which means he has brothers. And in fact, we are his brothers. Um, and he points out here that the apostle Paul is saying that we are going to be his brethren and he's going to be the firstborn according to the incarnation in our flesh, because in, you know, according to the Godhead, Christ is the only begotten. So according to the Godhead, he has no brothers, but in the flesh he does, and he is the firstborn and we are all his brothers and being made into his image. And he speaks of this about being uh, predestined and um, he sees this as being something that was foreordained from the beginning, which should give us encouragement that God has had these good things in mind from eternity past. Paul mentions these things to build up our hope, even though we in our finiteness have to derive them kind of from what we presently have available. We sort of can't see that eternal foreordaining. And in verse 30, where he talks about uh, those, um, who, those whom he uh, called, he also justified. He said justified refers to baptism. They're justified by the labor of baptism. And then he says they're glorified by the gift, by the adoption. And I was hoping Father Daniel would be here and I could ask him, by the gift, does he mean by chrismation? Is this really a reference to uh, or an allusion to um, baptism and chrismation? Justification by baptism and then glorification by, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, as I recall, are the words the priest says as he chrismates us. That sounds right to you, like those are the words? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, I think, is... Uh, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit? That's, that's it, that's it. Yeah. Uh, being raised uh, Presbyterian, 29 and 30 had a, a similar but very different uh, context of um, much wasn't so much in a way of giving hope, I think, uh, especially kind of paired with the whole like once saved, always saved, not, you know, not you need to keep working on this on a day to day basis. Uh, right. So um, still working on that myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I wanted to say a little about it, because I also spent some part of my uh, younger years being raised Presbyterian. Um, and yeah, so the, these these verses have a particular meaning for Calvinist theology. And oh it's very, you know, it shares a little bit that Chrysostom is saying, it's a great encouragement. Paul's teaching us that God always had this in mind for us, but pretty much there the similarity ends. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's not a reason to um, expect the condemnation of anyone else. And it's not a reason for us to relax and think we don't need to persevere. Right. Um, so then would you be so kind as to read uh, the rest of the chapter 31 through 39, please? Sure. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all killed. We are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Um, so he picks up there in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And says, essentially, Paul here is saying, don't let me hear any more about the dangers and ill treatment we face on every hand. God has given us his friendship and justification and glory, but his means were disgrace in the cross and scourging and bonds. Indeed, by such means, he brought about liberty and salvation for all men. And then he would say the same applies to us. Consider how Job suffered from the devil and his friends and from his wife, how the apostles suffered from the Jews and the Gentiles, and yet every evil done to them only served to increase their glory. And the same way, Someone who takes our money from us is giving us a reward. Someone who speaks ill of us is giving us fresh luster in God's sight. He who starves us increases our glory and reward. He who kills us wins us the martyr's crown. Those who do us mischief do us good as much as our benefactors do. Indeed, if God be for us, who can be against us? All are doing us good regardless of their intent. So it's sort of like, it's a theme that we see so often in John Chrysostom um, that he, he has that one lovely, lovely homily on no one can harm the man who does not injure himself. And essentially, everything that comes to us, whether we would think of it as good or ill, is meant for our, our glory, if we will only, by, by God's grace, respond well to it. Um, now, I, I do puzzle a little, a little over this sometimes. I sort of see how it applies to apostles and prophets and saints who are responding well to all sorts of things they suffered. But where I live life day by day, it's a lot more of, well, I'm really confused about um, how I should be ordering my life in various ways and generally ignorant of a lot of things and weak. And um, I, I respond ill to a lot of things as, as you know, it's a little discouraging. It's like, hmm, I'm not sure I can just apply that to myself wholeheartedly. I like, I can't even drive without uh, struggling with uh, anger and wrath. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to, to apply this to myself in a very good way. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I'm not alone then. Um, but I, as I, because he continues very much in this same line of thought for quite a bit of the rest of this passage. And it's just sort of like, 
um, you know, I think of the fireworks displays where they do this magnificent thing and then another one and then two at once and then three and then five and it becomes overwhelming. And he sort of just increases and increases the glory here um, so that, you know, none of us should despair um, because it's like, if you're at all inclined to despair, you still haven't understood yet the depths of God's love for you. Here, let me say it another way, yet more extremely. And I, I know that when I first studied John Chrysostom's, Chrysostom's homilies on, um, on Romans, one of the things I came away with is he has a perception of a God who is vastly gooder than I had ever thought of. He, he is good in far more ways and in a whole transcendent fashion that was just not even in my imagination. And this passage is one in which he really does that a great deal. Um, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave us all things. Um, and so, and uh, okay, am I in the wrong place here? It says, he did not only justify us, he means and glorify us and make us conform to his image, but not even his own son did he spare for us, even when we were enemies and blasphemers. And he gave his own son and not merely gave him, but gave him to death. Why doubt any more about the rest since you have the master? Since you have the master, sorry, I'm breaking it wrong. Why doubt about any more about the rest since you have the master? Why be dubious about the chattels when you have the Lord? For he that gave the greater thing to his enemies, how shall he do else than give the lesser thing to his friends? And this, of course, is something we've seen in Paul earlier. It's like he did all of these things for us when we were his enemies. How much more should we have good hope and good confidence that he will continue to do us good? Uh, he reads verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is he who condemns? And again, this word elect has within Presbyterian thought a very particular meaning. Oh, yeah. Um, but Chrysostom takes it a different way. And as I recall, he's going to pick up this theme again much more powerfully in Romans 9. But he says the word election here. This whole passage is against those who deny the value of faith and the change brought about by baptism. And I think maybe he's thinking especially of some of the Jews who would say, faith isn't going to do all these things for you. You need the law. Baptism's not going to do all of this for you. You know, you need circumcision. You know, you, you, the faith, you, this is just not adequate. Um, and so he says this word election indicates a choice. So the elect are the ones God has chosen. And he says, God has chosen us as a horsebreaker might choose colts to prepare for a race. And I think maybe really this is more like a horse trainer. But essentially the picture is that he's going to prepare some colts for the race. He's got to decide which ones are going to be amenable to his training. And so he picks certain ones out. He says, now... When he does that, no one else comes along after him and says, well, that was a silly choice. Obviously, these other cults are better because, you know, he's the expert. 
he can tell which ones will respond well and which ones won't. And the layman doesn't know what to look for. And he says, well, all the more, if God has chosen us to be his servants and his friends, who's going to gainsay him? Because he's not just a horse trainer. His worthiness is far beyond. Who's going to say, oh, God, you made the wrong choice there. And so it's sort of interesting because he takes this not as though, you know, in the Calvinist sense of God sovereignly made a choice arbitrarily because it was his will, but rather that God saw who would respond to him in the ways that lead to salvation. I may be saying a little too much there, but God recognized the right characteristics, if you will, in those whom he has chosen. And on that basis, he, he said, okay, you come, follow me. Um, and then we get to the verse 34. Uh, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore, who was also risen, who is, is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And Chrysostom has something very interesting to say here. Again, from the point of view of, of how to read the scripture, about Christ making intercession for us. And he says here, um, and I think this is where I've tried to sort of paraphrase what he's saying. We must interpret the teaching that Christ makes intercession for us as well as the expression in verse 32 about God not sparing his own son in a manner worthy of God namely that such expressions of these are a condescension in which God uses a human way of speaking in order to convey the greatness of his love for us. Where he says, at the right hand of God, this is indicating the equality and honor and rank between the Father and the Son. So in this context, Christ's interceding cannot indicate inferiority as though he were dependent on the Father to do what he cannot do himself. Rather, Christ has by his own power freed the condemned, made them righteous, made them sons, led them to the highest honors, and brought us benefits beyond anything we could have hoped for. It would be silly then to, silly is not Chrysostom's word, but it's my take on it. It would be silly then to imagine, to imagine him now somehow unable to provide ongoing care in lesser matters, having instead to beseech the Father to do so. Rather, we should see this as an expression of his love, as if he were a man who, in love, having given us endless benefits, even to the point of laying down his life for us, also in love, having the ear of the king, constantly uses his access to the king to speak in our benefit, or in our behalf. So what Chrysostom seems to be saying is, we should not take this literally, that Christ is making supplication of the Father for things that he can't do for us himself, this is merely a figure of speech, an adopting of sort of human language to express even yet more intensely Christ's love for us. As though having done all of these things for us in the past, he continues to beseech the king to do us yet more good. And you know, Chryst Chrysostom just briefly indicates that th the same should be true about verse 32 when we read about him not sparing his own son, that, you know, we should not take this as though, you know, God somehow 
gave up his son, you know, abandoned him to death in the same way that it would be if a man were to give his son for my benefit. That this is, you know, it doesn't have the same sense, you know, even though Christ certainly died for us, we can't take it the same way. But that this is yet another expression of his love. Think how much it would mean for a man to let his own son die for you. And understand then that this is a figure of speech to give us some suggestion of the intensity of God's love for us. That it's something that you could symbolize by a man giving up his son, even though it's something yet far greater. And um, you know, Chrysostom seems often to make comments like this, that we just can't read the scripture in a way that isn't worthy of God and isn't worthy of the gospel the way we've learned it. And so anytime we would be inclined to do that, we instead need to reread the passage. And in particular, he rereads it within the tradition handed to him by the church. The church has taught him what it needs to mean. And so we read it that way. That's definitely a uh, very different uh, approach than, than probably most of the rest of my life that I have, uh, I've seen others do and I've done myself. Yes, me too. You know, because if you start out with sola scriptura, well, then you're not allowed to have a context to read it in. Of course, that's impossible. You always have a context but it tempts you to pretend that you can read it without a context and not take anything more than what the word, words on the page say. And, you know, you begin to see that's a desperately impoverished way to read the scripture. And impossible, really, too, because uh, not just scripture, but in a, a lot of uh, writings and literature, like, yes, there's the words on the page, but what do the words on the page mean? And how do you interpret them in the context of the time of the culture of uh, like other events around it? Like mm -hmm. it's just impossible to only read the words on the page and not to go further than the words on the page. That's right. And the words themselves may not carry the same meaning. You know, if you're reading like something in a language, you know, but you know it in a more modern time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of, one of the things that I, I came to appreciate about the church is that the church is the context for this scripture. <laughs> this is where we can begin, begin to understand it in its fullness and riches. And, uh, you know, it was seen the riches that Chrysostom mined out of here in my evangelical days that made a very strong argument to me for the, uh, you know, for, for becoming Orthodox, for entering the church. Um, again, Chrysostom also on the same verse talks about, if then the spirit even, quote, makes, inter makes intercessions for us, intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, unquote, and Christ died and intercedes for us, and the father, quote, spared not his own son, unquote, for you, and elected you and justified you, why be afraid anymore? Or why tremble when enjoying such great love and having such great interest taken in you? And I find that really striking, you know, 
because Chrysostom's asceticism is well known and all that he suffered. And he was certainly well aware of the foibles of men and people who were trying to follow Christ. And yet here he reads out of the Apostle Paul here um, such extreme encouragement not to be afraid, just sort of enjoy, rest in the love and interest that God has shown in you, you know, and then continue the battle. <laughs> Both and. Yeah, right. But, but do it encouraged. Don't let despair weigh you down, that it's completely out of place. I'm not good at that, but it's, it's, it is, it's hopeful to read yes. that. Same, uh, too. <laughs> so going on here, um, try to wrap up. Um, where am I? Verse 35. Who shall separ separate us from the love of Christ? Um, now, there are a couple of things here. First of all, Chrysostom comments that the Apostle Paul uses the word Christ here instead of saying the love of God. And what he derives from this is, to the Apostle Paul, it's a complete matter of indifference, a matter of complete indifference. I said that wrong. Um, whether he says Christ or God, because, you know, essentially we believe in the Trinity. And so if he says Christ there or he says God there, it all means the same thing. And so um, he sees that. I, I think Chrysostom may mention that because there continued to be argument about this, I suppose, from the Arians, even in his own day. But it's also very striking here, and it's important for reading the rest of this passage, when he talks about the love of Christ, he means our love for Christ and not Christ's love for us. And I had to think about that a while. And I realized, well, we use that in other circumstances. For instance, if we talk about the love of money, we don't mean how much money loves us. And so the love of Christ could, on the face of it, equally well mean our love for him. And that is certainly the way St. John reads the apostles' writing here in the rest of this passage. Um, so essentially, he says, what would keep us from loving Christ? And Chrysostom says, now he doesn't even talk about just our daily temptations of like loving money or wanting glory or being enslaved to anger or whatever it may be. Um, he goes right to the things that are much harder, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And he says, even just in this one word tribulation, he's referring to a thousand dangers and a thousand trials that would almost seem just by nature to force us away from continuing to love Christ. And yet the apostle takes it as obvious that a man who has enjoyed such tremendous love and benefits from God could not be moved even by trials like that from loving Christ. And then in verse 36, the apostle quotes Psalm 44, 22. Um, I take it that's Masoretic text 44 rather than Septuagint. Um, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And um, Chrysostom again sees a great deal here. He sees the Apostle Paul bringing in 
the faithful from the Old Testament, like, you know, David facing death and, um, you know, the prophets who were killed and whoever it may be. And he said, even under the old covenant, they were ready to face death for the sake of Christ. They were ready to um, be contemptuous of the, the glories and riches of this world. And if they could do that under the old covenant, how much more we uh, who have been given far greater rewards, it would be unpardon unpardonable for us to do that. And in this line about, be for your sake, we are killed all day long, Chrysostom says, now you might think you can only gain a martyr's crown once because you have one life. But he said, in fact, we can be, we can receive the martyr's crown, not just once, but daily. He says we can, you know, enter glory with as many crowns as we've had days. And in fact, multiple times a day, if we keep this readiness to be, you know, martyrs to the world, giving up our, our share in, in the good things of this world, you know, ceasing to put our hope in this world, if we keep that mind constantly about us, and then, um, you know, every day, multiple times a day, we are gaining the crowns of martyrs. And also here he talks about, um, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, that we need to understand that God has made our bodies a sacrifice. And so we shouldn't be troubled by that. It's like God has ordered it this way. And so we should be content with his having made that choice for us. Um, verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. He repeats this notion that every means that our enemies attack us with simply becomes a method of victory for us. You know, the ex obvious ex example being death. Our enemies put us to death. We become martyrs. There is nothing they can do that doesn't, in fact, do us good if we will take up the fight with God's help. And this phrase, more than conquerors, indicates the ease of the victory because God is joining us in the fight. And he says we, we triumph not merely by facing the attacks, but also by setting our minds aright. So, you know, e each time that we set our minds aright, putting our hope not in the world, but in the things of God and continuing the battle, we essentially are, are, are triumphing. And again, he refer, speaks of all uh, of the persecutions of the apostles and all that they suffered from kings and from the people and from demons and how all of this only increased their victory and their glory. And then we have these lovely last couple of verses, but any thoughts or comments before I get into them? Um, I just kind of this uh, line, uh, for this was a new rule of victory for men to prevail by their adversaries. Uh, like that's just, I, I kind of like the, the, that turn uh, and yes. that interpretation. Yes, that was really good. And you, know, you really see it. So you triumph by the cross. Yeah. Triumph by martyrdom, by beatings. It's like, yeah, it's a, it's a new kind of, of battle. Well, that's cool. So you're getting to read all of this as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I bought the, uh, I think the $2, like the complete works of uh, St. John Chrysostom on Kindle. So uh, wonderful. Yeah. 
Oh, excellent. So you know how good it is. I do. Yeah. <laughs> but for all of you who are here on the, uh, on the hearing this on the recording, if you get the chance, you should really look these up. They're in the Nicene and post Nicene Fathers. Um, and Erica, you're saying you can pick it up in Kindle. You can. And then there's an IPETA app. It's a Catholic app, oh, yeah. but it has a lot of writings in it and, and includes, uh, I don't know if it's all of the writings of St. John Chrysostom, but it's a lot of them, including uh, the homilies on the different New Testament epistles. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So if you're listening to the recording, this is good stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm just scratching the surface here, trying to give you a taste of what's there. Um, it, it's lovely. So I, I'd encourage you to go and, and read more for yourself. So to verses 38 and 39, I, I took the liberty of trying to give uh, a, a very loose paraphrase of what Chrysostom says about these. Um, you know, anything that doesn't come off right is entirely my own fault. But I wanted to be—I wanted it to be very easy to understand for people who might be hearing it just over over the uh, the sound here, over the Zoom or over the recording. So about verses 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life and so on shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, and what Paul says is something like this: Why speak of things present and evils in this life? For even if someone told me of things to come, of death and life of powers, such as angels and archangels, and all the superior orders of beings. Even these would be little to me compared with the love of Christ. And remember, that means my love for Christ. For even if someone threatened me with eternal death or promised life without end to separate me from Christ, I would not agree to it. Why mention kings here below and consuls and this one or that? For if you tell me of angels or all the powers above or all existing things or all that are to come, they are all small to me, both those in the earth and those in heaven and those under the earth and those above heaven compared to this charm, that is the charm of loving Christ. Then, as though Paul's rejection of all these pretenders is still inadequate to express his love for Christ, he conjures up another world of equally great pretenders and says, nor any other creation. And what Paul means is nearly this. Even if there were any other creation as great as the visible and as great as the intelligible, none of them could part me from that love. This he says not as if the angels attempted it or the other powers, far from it, but as wishing to show the utmost, to the utmost, the charm Christ had for him. For Paul loved Christ, not for the things of Christ. Rather, because of Christ, Paul loved the things that were Christ's. And to him alone he looked, and one thing he feared, and that was falling from his love for Christ. For this thing was in itself more dreadful than hell, as to abide in it was more desirable than the kingdom. That's pretty good stuff. It is. But... It always leaves me a little puzzled when I hear anyone talking about this passage because I've never heard anyone else suggest that the love of God refers to our love for us. And so, you know, whenever else any whenever anyone else comments on this, I'm thinking, yes, but John Chrysostom read it this way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Though certainly there are times when John Chrysostom will read a passage and say, well, you know, here's what it means. Though some people read it this way and, yeah, well, that's okay too. <laughs> so may, may, maybe he would not argue against the other reading of this. So anyway, 9.16, that's like an hour and one minute after we started. I guess that's not too bad. No. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions, observations before we call it a night? Um, I can't really think of anything. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, thanks for letting me go on reading at length passages you'd already read. Let me see if I can stop the sharing here. Uh, well, I'll bring a halt to the recording then. Thank <laughs> you.